Hey, soccer fans, welcome back to the Feed the Fire podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and in tonight's episode, we're going international for a little bit. We're talking CONCACAF Nations League, especially taking a look at the USMNT's home-and-home matchup against Trinidad and Tobago. We've also got a fire transfer rumor we're going to chat about, and we're going to give you some of John Donovan's unfiltered opinions on all of it. Stay tuned for all of this and more. Hey, soccer fans, welcome back to the Feed the Fire podcast. Once again, I am your host, Nick, and thank you for joining me each and every week as we talk all things Chicago Fire, Major League Soccer. And this week, with the international tournaments going on, we're talking CONCACAF Champions League, or CONCACAF Nations League, excuse me, getting ahead of myself here a bit. CONCACAF Nations League, as well as the USMNT's performances against Trinidad and Tobago. Now, getting into the Nations League, it's a relatively new tournament. It was kind of designed to to really pull up some of the smaller uh, footballing and soccer nations and get them some regular, consistent competition, some good competition. Because just looking here in CONCACAF, if you're the United States and you want to improve your squad, you're not going to be scheduling clubs like... St. Vincent and the Grenadines. You you are going to be trying to schedule European clubs, South American clubs. And as a result of that, these Caribbean nations, these Central American nations, never really get exposed to some of the bigger and better uh, organizations in soccer, the bigger and better run programs. Additionally, you have confederations like uh, Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Um, Australia made the jump to the Asian Confederation because it wasn't getting enough quality competition in uh, the Oceania region, if you will. So uh, you, that was the idea of Nations League. It's you're going to get your teams playing tons of games. You're going to get your nations and your confederation playing tons of games against each other. And hopefully everyone continues to improve. Now, for, for these smaller Caribbean nations, it's it's a huge benefit. A lot more soccer is being played, a lot more exposure for their players as well as to other competition. For the United States, Mexico, Canada, Panama to a certain extent maybe, it's not maybe the best because all the other teams that you want to play against, like those South American and European teams, are tied up in their own Nations League, and they have very limited international friendly windows, which is Part of the reason why you saw the United States having to play Oman and Uzbekistan uh, in some earlier friendlies when they should have been playing uh, more competitive teams. Now, that being aside, where it does help is you get to improve your rankings, your FIFA rankings against your other uh, confederation opponents because the World Cup qualifying is now going towards FIFA rankings or is already FIFA rankings for 2026. So that's where the benefit is. It was all tied in for FIFA trying to raise raise the floor, I guess, of international soccer. So that's a little bit of the backstory on it. But this particular iteration, the 2023-2024 CONCACAF Nations League, it's the third season of the Nations League. There are 41 member associations of CONCACAF, and we have gotten through all the group stage. Those games are played in September, October, uh, and 
now they are into some of the knockout in the group stage uh, in this November 2023. And the finals are scheduled for March 21st and 24th in the spring 2024 uh, in Arlington, Texas at AT&T Stadium. So we've got that to look forward to coming up. Now, this year, the Nations League also serves as the qualification for the CONCACAF teams to get into Copa America, the South American tournament, which is being hosted in the United States this year. So there's 10 South American countries that are going to qualify, as well as six North American CONCACAF nations that will qualify. And we have seen already Panama, Jamaica, and the United States have qualified for Copa America. And then depending on tonight's result of Honduras and Mexico, um, the winner of that team will that matchup will qualify right now. Honduras leads 2-0 on aggregate. Uh, and then the remaining four teams will go into a playoff and the last two uh, will come out of that to qualify for Copa America. So as we mentioned, the quarterfinal matchups, Panama defeats Costa Rica 6-1 on aggregate. Jamaica defeats Canada 4-3 on aggregate. Yeah, Jamaica is going to Copa America. That is just kind of crazy to say, but also very, very cool to say. Jamaica is going to Copa America after beating Canada 3-2 to uh, in Toronto. And I was watching that game, and man, it was quiet. Unfortunately, the, the broadcast commentary, the, the sound feed didn't sync up. So, like, for the first, like, half hour or so, there was no commentary. No commentating, no broadcast, nothing. It was just the crowd noise. And there really wasn't much there to begin with. But, oh, man, when Jamaica started scoring there was even less. It was a look of shock on the Canadian players and fans' faces after falling 3-2 to two to Jamaica. Uh, Jamaica's player Nicholson had a brace in that, so who knows if he's going to get scouted by some MLS team in the future. Uh, like I said, Honduras is playing Mexico right now. Honduras takes a 2-0 lead into this game. We'll see if they can hold on and advance past Mexico. But, of course, what's most important for us here at the Feed the Fire podcast is the U.S. men's national team. They got they get matched up with Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, they play a home leg in the United States, winning 3-0, and then they go away to Trinidad and Tobago, lose that game 2-1, but still advance 4-2 on aggregate. But looking at these games, they were not inspiring or encouraging USMNT performances. They were almost kind of a step back to the beginning of the Berhalter era where he tried to institute a style of possession play and the U.S. just didn't exactly know what to do with it because they'd never done it before. Now, they were pretty good at passing the ball, dominating possession, maintaining possession, not committing silly turnovers, but they could not break down Trinidad and Tobago's low block. They could not get that last pass. They could not get that key pass leading to a shot and putting a shot uh, on goal until later on in the game. And, and they did eventually get their shots and their goals, but it took them 80, 82 minutes or so before they scored the first. Maybe that first goal came in the 81st minute. Honestly, TNT sat, Trinidad and Tobago sat in that low block. They sometimes didn't even pick up an American attacker until they were like even with the 18-yard line. That's how deep they were sitting at times. Now, this is extremely discouraging as an American soccer fan because the U.S. has faced and will continue to face this kind of tactic throughout CONCACAF. Canada, Mexico, 
will not go will not sit in a low block. They feel that they can match the United States with talent and tactics, if not overcome them with talent and tactics. But these Caribbean nations, some of these Central American nations, um, Costa Rica has been, you know, after getting smacked around by Panama 6-1, Costa Rica is definitely in a, in a rebuild. And they may resort to some of these tactics. Just slow the game down, slog through it, and ultimately force the United States to try to either come up with some individual brilliance or have a new tactical plan to try and break break them down in that final third, in that low block. And so far, the United States has not been able to do it. Reasons why. I think all the criticism and all the reasoning comes down to two things. Number one, coaching is screwing it up. Number two, the players are screwing it up. I mean, obviously, that's the majority of it. I'm oversimplifying. But here, coaching. Tactics. The coaching tactics are not set to break down a low block. That's what people are saying. That it's so much possession, but they can't get into... Uh, they can't break down when there's a lot of defenders. You know, they, it looks for overloads. Uh, Burhalter system looks for overloads, looks for switches, looks for crosses, looks for working the ball around back and forth. But when you're a team like Trinidad and Tobago and you drop 10 men behind the ball, it doesn't matter how many switches, there's always going to be defenders there. doesn't matter if you try to overload. It, you can't. There's always going to be more defenders there than attackers or as many defenders as attackers. Um, you're going to need a goal off of a set piece uh, off of a huge mistake on the other team's part or on an individual brilliance level to really kind of unlock that, or you're going to have to really, really become, you know, Barcelona esque uh, in your passing in and out uh, in between those lines when they set up in their low block. Uh, and the U S just isn't there right now. Now is it, it is coaching in part because Greg Brewerhalter and his staff have not shown the flexibility to get away from their possession style. And, and I'm going to put a little asterisk on that because I'm going to come back to that thought a little later. And there's there's there may be a good reason for that. But here's the other thing. The players got to score goals. You know, it doesn't matter what the coaches are telling them or how they're lining up. If you can't put a ball on frame, if you can't score a goal in 10 attempts or, or however many the U.S. goal to shot ratio was that game, that's on the players. And here's the other thing. On an individual talent level, the United States men's national team players should be able just to ball out against these Caribbean nations like Trinidad Tobago. They should Gio Reyna should be able to look at his one defender and go, I'm going to take you one-on-one. -on -one. And that's then how you create a mismatch or how you create an overload, or how you get their defense rotating and scrambling, and you can find space to play a ball into for an on-rushing Balligan, Pepe, uh, Ferreira, whoever is playing at that striker position at that number nine, right? That is what you're going to have to do. And I'm actually kind of surprised that some of these young U.S. players didn't just get frustrated and go, screw it, I'm just going to take him one-on-one. -on -one. And maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe the coaching staff's waiting for that. Or maybe the coaching staff is going to say, now in this situation, you have the green light now to go kind of run the play as you see fit or run at a defender like that. Because with Balogun, he may be your best striker overall, but he's not going to be getting on the end of those aerial, aerial balls coming in, right? He is not tall enough. I'm sure the guy can jump, but he is not known for scoring goals with his head. The other problem with this matchup against Trinidad and Tobago, again, we talked about the coaching, we talked about the players. Here's some intangibles now. 
the USMNT seemed extremely disengaged. It looked like they were there just out of obligation, that this is a formality, that we're going to get through or whatever. And then when things kind of got tight at the end of that first game, then they started to feel the sense of urgency, playing faster, playing more precise, and then getting one, two, and three goals. However, that didn't carry over into the second game in Trinidad and Tobago. Now, the pitch looked like junk and definitely sl literally slowed the game down because of how they were running in it, how the ball was rolling and playing on it. But that aside, there was no sense of urgency from the Americans. Again, after seeing what they did in that first game, maybe they felt like they could flip a switch and turn it on. Uh, but that you can't have that mentality especially at the U.S.'s level right now. If you do want to compete with the top 10 countries in the world, you can't just be waiting to flip a switch because they will have already scored two and three goals on you. And in this instance, the United States gets the, goal, gets the initial goal, but they don't flip the switch. They get complacent. And then Trinidad and Tobago comes back and scores two more. You also have Serginho Dest, which has been described as one of the worst red cards in American soccer history. Um, he, first of all, was unhappy with either a non-call or no call, or maybe the ball being called out of bounds when he thought it was still in play when he was trying to make a play on it. So he punts it into the stands. Yeah, let me say that again. He didn't like a call, so he punted the ball into the stands. So there's the yellow card right there. Fine, you're frustrated. You took it out. Realize in the moment where you are. But no, he doesn't. He continues then to mouth off to the referee so much so where he's had three teammates trying to turn him around and push him away. And he still is lipping off, mouthing off to the referee. He even covers his mouth so the lip readers cannot see what he's saying. Like, you know, he's saying the worst things possible at that point. Picks up a second red card, a second yellow card within a minute, gets booted from the game. He exits on the far side of the field, and as he's walking around, he is still jawing at the ref. He walks behind the American goal. Matt Turner's even shoving him away. This is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, and Greg Berhalter didn't say how he was going to address it in the postgame, uh, but if, for my opinion, for what it, he, he cost his team a win. He cost them the game by bringing that attitude onto the pitch, by refocusing the players' uh by refocusing them onto him instead of onto the game, also being down a man. And then as Tim Ream pointed out correctly post-game, like the United States came in with a game plan. Some of their starters were only going to play either a half or limited minutes. Uh, and then at the end of the game, you want to be able to rotate guys to address the game state, whether you're up a goal, whether you're tied and chasing a goal, you know, you want to be able to have that flexibility with your roster and substitutions. When you pick up a 39th minute red card for something as dumb as Dest did, yeah, say that three times fast. For something as dumb as Dest did, you throw all of that out and are scrambling from a coaching perspective. So I'm willing to cut a little bit of slack to, to the coaching staff and the players after Dest's blow up, but there was still no tactical adjustments and still no urgency or moments of individual brilliance from the United States. Uh, in, in either match of the TNT game, especially the one after death's red card. Now, I said I'd come back to a little something, hanging a little asterisk on, uh, you know, why Berhalter wants to insist on playing this possession style, right? Now, that is how you're going to maximize the talent. Everyone keeps saying 
Berhalter is screwing up with the most talented bunch of American soccer players ever, but yet they don't want him playing the style that maximizes their talent, where the U.S. is in possession and has the ball and is able to utilize their talent. So to me, that doesn't make any, any sense of that criticism of his. Now, if that possession style uh, doesn't match up with an opposing team, well, then maybe it's on him. If he's not making adjustments, well, then, yeah, maybe that's on him. But now getting back to my point, none of these games really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's all on the World Cup. The U.S. is qualified for the World Cup. After advancing against Trinidad and Tobago, they've also qualified for Copa America. Keep the big picture in mind here. Use a good run in Copa America to springboard a run to the semifinals in the World Cup. I'm not going to say to the finals. I don't want to go crazy yet. But get to the semis. It's in your backyard with, yeah, I'll say it, the, the most talented bunch. At that time, it should be the most talented bunch of American players that we've ever seen, you know, in two years, in two years time. That's the big picture. And that's why he's playing this style and putting them through these adverse tests, even in games people think the United States should be winning 6 nothing. All right, that's enough for my US MNT takes. Let's bring it back local. Let's bring it back to our backyard here. The Chicago Fire. The only bit of news since the, the massive announcements of the of the contracts extensions for Heights and Pelzer, as well as Brian Gutierrez's big extension. The only news that we've picked up this week is uh, that the club is negotiating with Harold Preciado, a Colombian striker currently playing in Liga MX for Santos Laguna. Now here's the basics of uh, Harold Preciado. So that way, you know, if you want to talk about him around your soccer water cooler, people still do that. If you can go into the office, I don't know. Uh, he turned a pro in 2013. He's played in Colombia, China, and Mexico. So it's, it's not like he, he was in a big league and, you know, decided to kind of come back home, so to say, and play in the, in, in, in a Latin country or, you know, it's not like he's had his entire career in Liga MX and has become this, you know, massive name there. No, he's bounced around. He's played in Colombia, China, and now Mexico. What's really interesting is across all of those leagues, across his career, on average, he's scoring about every other game, like a goal every two games. And in Liga MX, he's leading the league in scoring right now with 11 goals in 16 games. And even at age 20. 28, 27, 28, he got his first call-up to the Colombian national team. He's got two call-ups since 2022. So he is definitely a late bloomer, if you want to call him that. Um, again, turning 29 in June. But he's consistent. He has been consistent. So now let's talk about the numbers of the deal here. Uh, if this is, in fact, going to happen, what's it going to look like? Now, according to the website Transfer Market, he's valued at about six and a half million dollars um that would be potential transfer fee and that would mean he would occupy a designated player spot for the chicago fire he's currently under contract through december 2024 so if the fire get this done uh he'll they'll have him for one season if they can't work out an extension now again regardless of all that he's going to be a designated player spot and it's going to signify Again, a rather large investment for the Chicago Fire. We remember the transfer fee and salary paid for Jared and Shakiri. Uh, his, his salary alone is like $8 million. Uh, it, 
it's probably a little more in the, in, in the upcoming season. So that's a huge, huge amount in one player. And they would probably have to sign him, have to sign Preciado for probably one or 2 million for, for that season, for this season. So you would have as an organization, 10 million or $10 million tied up in two players. Now, way back at the beginning of, of this 2023 season, we did a, a show where we kind of looked at how different clubs allocated their salaries. And you've got a club like the Chicago fire who is extremely top heavy, 8 million with Shakiri, you know, over a million with Shabilko over a million with Torres. I wanted to say, or approaching a million, you know, you had these real top heavy contracts for who are essentially middle to below average MLS players. Right. Meanwhile, you look at some other of the more successful clubs like LAFC, and they have spread their money around. They are not giving guys five, six, seven, eight million dollar contracts. They're giving that and not giving them three, four, five years. They're giving, you know, two or three million dollars for two years. And then their scouting is is continuing to turn it over. Right. And you're seeing some of these guys who are being transferred out like Diego Rossi, who is now back in the league with Columbus, right? So LAFC is doing it right. They're able then to take, say, the two or three million that they're not spending on a top end player and then spreading it out across maybe roster spots seven through 15 and really getting solid, uh, solid depth pieces. No, solid role players and solid depth pieces. That's what I was trying to go for. So, if the fire are going to really Shakiri's contract is kind of screwing everything up, but if the fire are going to do this, it's probably going to be, or at least I hope so, you know, nothing more than a million bucks, right around a million bucks for the rest of his contract for that year. And then maybe they can get him in an extension and maybe try to sell him, depending on what their plans are over the next two to four years. Speaking of that, but how does the Preciado signing, if it happens, fit in? with the recent management decisions, with Heights and Pelzer's extensions, and the fact that there's no coach. A lot of people are saying, how can you go out and sign DPs if you don't know who your coach is going to be and how he's going to want to play, or if this guy's even going to want to play for them? Well, that's the thing. You're going to have to overpay. We talked about this when the Lewandowski uh, to the Chicago Fire rumors came out. You are The Chicago Fire are in such a bad position for their senior team with uh, front office management, with coaching, with the actual just locker room and the players there that you're going to have to overpay for a player like Lewandowski or in this case, Preciado, right? So how does this going to fit in? Heights and Pels are extended, but we don't know for how long. And if you're that terrible kind of pessimist, and I don't mean terrible that I think you're terrible, but it's just that bad of a pessimist. And you think that Frank Lopez is coming back of a manager it's only it can only signal short-term planning. The fire are only thinking one to two years out right now. And then in another one to two years, you're gonna have Shakiri and Preciado, their DP deals done. Torres, Shabilko, off the books, Dumbia off the books, and maybe even at the end of the season. Aceves, I don't think they, they're gonna exercise that that option on his loan. He's gonna be off the books. Uh you're gonna shed all these overpaid players. And then if you only have Heights and Pelzer on another two-year deal, say, or one or two-year deal, or they have 
other things that they're going to be doing within the global market. Because the Chicago Fire, there was one random tweet or rumor out there that Joe Mansueto, the owner of the Fire and Lugano over in Switzerland, is looking to buy a team in England too. And maybe he'll just promote Heights and Pelzer to go handle kind of the international operations. And then you can hire a top executive, a top coach with three DP slots to fill. And then you'll have money still sitting around from the sales of Slonina and Duran. And probably you're going to transfer Chris Brady while, while you can get a high value for him. Maybe a couple other younger players that you can maybe flip for a million or two. Uh, and then you can really go out and build a brand new team. And in two years, you're essentially an expansion team with history, right? Now, can Heights and Pelzer pull it off? Can they think to this level? Probably not. Will Mansueto step in before the two of those guys mess it up? I hope so. Does this make me feel any better about next season, about 2024? No, not at all. But honestly, it's the only thing, it's the silver lining that's just going to keep me come back and watching. Now, with that, let's take our sponsor break here. I want to remind you all that Feed the Fire is brought to you by Skira Icelandic Spring Water. Icelandic for clear Skira water comes from a spring in government-protected nature preserve in Iceland with a naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water. Clearly, pun intended, it's one of the best. Go out to your local Walgreens, grab a couple bottles of Skira, pour them into a pitcher, set it out for the holidays. Everyone's going to think that you've got just the, the best mineral water out there or the low mineral water, if you will. And I'll tell you, when I stayed in Iceland, it's been a year now since my time in Iceland, they actually had signs in their hotels that said, we don't provide bottled water because our tap water is better than any bottled water that you would get. It's all the, the volcanic uh, rock that the water filters through. Uh, that filters out everything. It's it's fantastic water. Go out, get a bottle or two or three of Skira. And at this point, after our sponsor break, we usually have a clip from John Donovan, but he did not send us a clip in this week. But he and I were texting a little bit. And as I teased at the beginning of the show, he gave me some very candid takes that I want to share with you right now. Now, regarding Joe Mansueto's interview after he announced the uh, extensions of Heights and Pelzer. John says, I just listened to the interview. I think Mansueto is watching another team. <laughs> and it's, it's hard not to disagree with John when Mansueto is talking about the development of guys like Federico Navarro and everything else that was going on on the pitch. So, John, you might be right. I think he was, he might have been watching Lugano at that point, or at least confusing it with the different Lugano players on the fire roster. Now, Regarding the Preciado rumors, John says, I think he should go to any other team than Chicago. They will destroy his future. Nah, he's already 29. I don't know how much longer his future is. But anyway, John continues, imagine being the best player in Mexico and not going to the Galaxy. You'd have to be crazy to want to play for Frank Lopez. And if you remember, John told the story he ran into Chris Rolfe some years back, who said that, yeah, when Lopez was the head coach the first time around, he lost the locker room fairly quickly, and it showed. And maybe we saw that a little bit this season, too. Uh, John's other comment on Preciado, if the Fire bring in another center mid or let Gutierrez take the midfield spot and push the DP bust, he's talking about Jordan Shakiri to the left side, they might have a chance. Yeah, I think that would be a great thing to see Gutierrez centrally playing the ball either out wide to Ale Selassie, Shakiri, 
Mueller, maybe a new winger they sign, and then having that option or playing it directly up to Preciado, uh, I think that would look great. And John finishes that thought saying, they have the talent, they just don't have the management. Uh, do they have the talent to do what, John? That would be my only follow-up. Do they have the talent to compete for trophies? Probably not. Do they have the talent to make the playoffs? I think they do, especially given the expanded playoff field in Major League Soccer. Uh, the talent to fight for a top five spot in the East? Maybe, maybe. We'll see how the signings go and how Chris Mueller looks from his injury return. And John, John's final thought here, regarding future signings, he says, what the Fire need this year just to carry them through is a Mike McGee type player. Someone that costs them a couple million, not overwhelming, nothing long-term, but it will give them credibility in the market. It can't be more than a year or they'd have to put him in an insane asylum. <laughs> that last part. John, are you talking about yourself, uh, the fans, or the actual player, or you know, Heights or, Mansway, Heights or uh, Pelzer if they're going to give the short-term signing a long-term deal? Uh, but regardless, John, you, you make some great points here, and I kind of wanted to talk through a couple of them real quickly. This, you know, Mike McGee short-term type of signing, that could be what Preciado is. And I really like how you talk about, John, credibility in the market. We've seen the Chicago Fire be linked and rumored to so many different players that they were unable to sign. And having to sign their second, third, fourth choice uh, of players to bring into this roster. I just don't think the Fire have a good business reputation. Yeah, they've sold some good players. Yeah, they've gotten some good talent coming through their academy system as a result of, uh, you know, the, the local scouting and the homegrown, the Chicago area. Um, but they haven't been able to sign players and give players what they want in order to come to play in Chicago. Cause I mean, if you're going to have the option of playing at any city in, in MLS, Chicago as, as a city might not be as appealing as others. However, your training facilities, your, your home stadium, your, uh, your, your disgruntled fan base that doesn't turn up for games. Like these are things that are also on the minds of players when they look to come someplace. So that's part of the reason why they are having a hard time signing players. And I just don't think Heights is, you know, a guy is ever negotiating from a position of strength, nor do I think he can bluff that he's negotiating from a position of strength in the international market. Um, as far as player acquisitions go at the very least. So, I, I agree with you on that one, John. If they can sign Preciado, that will give them some credibility, and clubs are going to have to start taking them a little bit more seriously in their uh, in their business dealings. Now, getting back to MLS, we've got a playoff update. The playoffs are finally back. We get to just sit back and digest all of our Thanksgiving food while we watch the playoffs. And, and real quick, I really don't like how long the season has gotten and how long these playoffs have dragged out. You've got an international break in the middle of your playoffs. You've already got an expanded leagues cup coming up, all the national team competitions. Like it's a lot and it's a long MLS season. But then again, maybe that's why they have expanded the playoffs to nine teams or, you know, seven and two wild cards in each conference because they know that clubs aren't playing at a hundred percent for long stretches of the season. So Oh, maybe maybe in all that sense, this expanded playoff kind of works. I'd rather have it be a shorter season, and I'd rather have it six teams in each conference make it. But that's just me. We can debate playoff formatting and seasons all night long. But here's what's coming up 
on the schedule. November 25th, Saturday, Orlando is hosting Columbus. Also on the 25th, Cincinnati is hosting Philadelphia. So you've got your Eastern Conference games on Saturday and your Western Conference games on Sunday. Houston hosting Kansas City and Seattle hosting LAFC. Now, when I did my initial bracket, uh, I had Atlanta defeating Columbus and I had New England defeating Philly. So I was I missed those two. Uh, but at this point, I've got to go with the two Ohio teams. I got to got to think Columbus and Cincinnati, uh, with their high-powered offenses, are really going to take it to Orlando uh, and Philadelphia. Though it would not shock me if I am wrong in that these are four excellent, excellent teams in the Eastern Conference. Now, looking in the West, uh, I had Houston matching up with Kansas City, and I picked Kansas City to win. I'm going to stick by that pick. They're getting hot at the right time. I don't know if Houston can keep this momentum going, uh, especially, well, what momentum? They've just been off for two weeks because international break. Whoops. So I think Kansas City takes this one. Uh, I did pick LAFC over Seattle in my initial bracket. I'm going to stick with it. And uh, I I think we are going to get some exciting, exciting matchups, regardless of who wins. I'm looking for a lot of goals in this one. Uh, I, I don't think these teams are going to come out timid. Uh, the, I just think that they have their style and it's offense. All four of these teams are here because of their offense. Now I want to thank everyone for tuning in for listening. That wraps up episode. What are we on? 62 already guys. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks for sticking with me throughout this podcasting journey. Please like subscribe, follow along, especially on Spotify, share the link. Let's grow the conversation. Let's grow the show. And as always, Let's go fire.